So tonight, I've called tonight's talk, The Wise and Fearless Heart. And you know, in the talks each night, we've been working with this amazing list, The 37 Wings of Awakening. And if you remember, that it's all about these different wings, different groups of um, tools that we can use to support our waking up. There are ways to cleanse the heart and mind from greed and hatred and delusion, the three obscurations, so that we can see clearly. We've had some talks on, on the foundations of mindfulness, particularly on the body at this point. There'll be more of the other foundations coming up pretty quickly. Um, we've talked some about the heart. And last night, I know that John invited you all to have frog clarity. I loved that line in his poem. Because every night when I hear the frogs out there, there's something about their call that it's almost silence, isn't it? It's pretty amazing, the kind of clarity that comes with that frog sound. And so there, and he invited you all to become hunters of clarity. And he worked with Um, that sort of amazing double list that is the five faculties and the five strengths of faith and effort and mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. So we're going to continue uh, on through the retreat doing just this, working with some of these different wings and talking about them so that they're really available to each one of you in your practice. So right now, What I'd like to do is invite you to close your eyes for a minute and we're going to do a little work together in the imaginal realm. So you can imagine, if you will, that you are members of a small monastic community and it's many hundreds of years ago. And this community is located some miles away, some many miles away, maybe 10, 15. And you've come over here, you've walked over here to this lovely center in the coastal hills to visit for a few days, to receive some teachings from the Buddha. And now the Buddha has given his teachings and it's nighttime and it's dark and it's time to go home. And you're going to be walking those same several miles home, up over the steep ridges and down into the canyons through the forest. And it's several hundred years ago, so there are no flashlights, no headlamps. And all you've got, this little group of 10 or 12 monks and nuns, are maybe a couple of wavering torches, one in the beginning of the line and one at the end. So you can't see very much. And you know that there are wild animals out there and probably some mischievous tree spirits lurking. And you are very, very scared of what might lie ahead in the dark. So because you're so scared, the Buddha gives you some instructions, gives you a particular practice to work with as you walk through the dark night. And this 
is what he gives you. He gives you his words on loving kindness. You can open your eyes now if you'd like. He says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So it's said that they walked back through the forest, those monks. This is actually a story from the suttas. And they made it home quite safely. So you know, here we are at the retreat. We're our own community of monks and nuns, if you will, for this period of time. And maybe you're not, I hope you're not hiking off into the forest for miles and miles at night but you are hiking off into the wilderness of your own minds and hearts. And you know, you never know, do you, what you're going to find. Even even those of you who have been here for five weeks, it's still unfolding itself. It's pretty amazing. And sometimes, you know, we can get a lot of fear going while we're here about what might happen to us. And sometimes it's fear about what might happen to us here, and sometimes there's fear from issues on the outside that are frightening to us. 
Sometimes it's issues that are present and sometimes it's things from the past. And it's really important to remember, I think particularly for those of you who are just at the end of your first week of practice, Vipassana, we love to talk about how it's a wisdom practice. And sometimes we forget to talk about the fact that it's a purification practice. So, you know, that means, where are you? You're not at this beautiful retreat center, you're at the garbage dump, right? And your stuff is coming up. And certainly, as I've listened to people in the last couple of days, that's pretty apparent, you know? It's garbage dump city around here for a while. So I wanted tonight particularly to take a look at fear because it's come up in some interviews, fear and anxiety and the way it it really grabs us and sometimes paralyzes us and shuts us down. And to look at some ways that we might develop the heart in order to meet that fear. Because it just happens so often to all of us, to all of us, to all of us up here in the front and to all of you out there where the mind and the heart contract. And in the world, you know, sometimes it's fear around work, new work or losing old work. And sometimes it's fear about what's happening in your relationship, something that needs to be said or something that might be changing or sometimes the ending of a relationship all the kinds of things that come up about the many, many complicated life situations that arise. And here, which is probably more the point right now, here, it's all the things that come up in the mind and the heart. Sometimes it's the pain in the body, you know, does it mean something? That question, is this a pain that requires attention? Does it need anything from ice packs to the trip to the hospital? Or is it just sitting pain, the kind of thing that happens for all of us in our bodies? Sometimes it's the fear around the strange mind states or the powerful emotions that come up as we sit. Or sometimes it's memories that come back that are very, very difficult as they arise. Once in a while it's a memory you had completely forgotten was in there. And there it is one more time. Sometimes it's anxiety about simple things, right? I'm swallowing too much. I've heard that in so many interviews. You know, I'm swallowing too much. What are my neighbors going to say? You know, and or maybe I'm coughing. You know, I've got a cold and I'm sniffling and coughing, and you know, and my I know my neighbors are angry, and and then the anxiety comes up around that, doesn't it? Or sometimes, you know, the big fear, the one of death. You know, that we the awareness of our own death comes in for one reason or another and it really seizes us and we get very, very scared. It's pervasive and we all have it. And so it's really important then to become a student of your fear, you know, to notice what it is in order to know best how to work with it. So here are some things to think about, about fear. Fear is not about the present moment. It's never in the present moment. Fear is always in the future. If the bear has you by the elbow, you're usually managing to cope. You know, 
You don't have much time to be afraid then. But where the fear kicks in is what happens when he gets to my head. You know, that's, that's the scary part. What will, what will that be like? Now is usually manageable. It's not pleasant. It maybe demands action. But it's usually manageable. And it's constantly changing. Another thing is that fear tends to focus on a really solid, concrete, compressed sense of self. It's about me or mine. Very much selfing involved in fear. And it's often attached to a very particular outcome. We want something particular to happen. And there's lots of clinging involved. So when we're afraid, you know, the fear comes in, the mind and often the body contract, and there's not a lot of space. Sometimes it feels like you can't breathe. Alternatively, sometimes we hyperventilate. That's not so good either. And we feel trapped and we feel like we can't move. I've had so many interviews when people have been talking about fear, and I often give them an image. I gave it to someone again yesterday. So you could imagine if you were sitting in a box, probably be you know a washing machine box, so just about the size of your zabaton that you're sitting on. So the walls come up here and right here, and the front wall is right here. And you look over here, and you notice that there's a large tarantula in the box with you. This is not good news, right? It can be, particularly for some of us, it can be really, really frightening because it's a very closed space. But if you're in here, and I look over on that wall, someplace where there isn't anybody up on that wall, and I notice, oh look, there's a big spider up there. It's okay, right? It's not such a, it's not such a big deal to have a spider in that much space. So that's part of what we want to work with, is how do we create that kind of space? And you know, I hear that story about those monks and nuns and how scared they were. And, and I think, you know, I've had times in my life when I've been very afraid of going out into the dark. And I just think, oh, those poor people, so caught in their fear. And then sometimes I think, poor all of us were so caught in our fear. But it is important to begin to see that it is always about the future. It's always about the future. It's not here. And that it comes in waves. That's one of the things that I found to be most helpful. Some years ago, I went to the doctor and there was some test or another that wasn't quite right, you know. And he was concerned. So he said, well, you know, I think you should have a CAT scan. And so you can imagine what began to happen because, of course, the CAT scan was a few days out. And I think I sort of immediately began to plan deathbed scenes and funeral plans. And, you know, and I was really, really scared because what if it was whatever it was going to be? I don't even remember now. And so I was just so contracted and so scared. But then every now and then, you know, life would set in and I'd have a meal to prepare or another conversation to have or work to do. And the fear would, fear would subside a little bit. 
And after a while, I began to go, oh, look, you know, there's a wave of fear. It goes through and then it subsides. And then there's a wave of fear and it goes through and then it subsides. So I live in Santa Cruz, right? I live by the ocean and people surf all the time. So it's a pretty good image. I thought, oh, you know, all I have to do is figure out how to ride this wave when it goes through because it will go through. I couldn't stop that. But I could kind of learn how to, I didn't have to panic. I didn't have to make the funeral plans, you know. I could just ride it. The other thing to remember is that it's a conditioned mind state. So you have things in your past that create the conditions for fear to arise. You know, previous experiences, your own and those of others. And out of those conditions, this mind state comes in. And so beginning to realize that the fear is going to come up. You can't stop that. Conditioned mind states arise. Your job is to notice them and figure out what you need to do. Do you need to listen? Because not everything that the mind produces is worth believing. It's a very useful teaching. The mind puts out a lot of garbage. So on my altar at home, I have a Buddha. And he has the Abhaya Mudra, which looks like this. And of course, what it means in the Abhaya Mudra means fear not. But of course, in our world, this means what? It means stop, right? Stop. I always like that. You know? Stop. Don't panic. Just stop. So that's really the question, isn't it? What happens when we stop and we investigate? And we may notice that fear, there's a number of elements to it. There's likely to be some confusion, We often, sometimes things are happening fast. We don't see so clearly. Sometimes there's quite a lot of aversion. Most of us don't like either a situation which creates fear or the fear itself. We're averse to the averse feeling of fear. There's often a sense of danger and some sense of vulnerability. And we want out. We want to escape. So when all of that is true, what happens is we often react. We don't stop, you know. So we react rather than respond. And it's hard not to react sometimes. And the reaction can make things worse. So really the question is, stop. What's true? Now, it's important to acknowledge that sometimes the danger is real. Sometimes the truck is barreling down on you and you have to get out of the way or the ice is too thin. And we have to act and we have to act quickly. Sometimes there really is something going on in the body and we need to respond to that very quickly. But so often that's not true. So often a lot of our anxiety and fear is more in that confused, averse, vulnerable mind state. Tanisaro Bhikkhu has a saying, he says, although aging, illness, and death follow inevitably on birth, delusion doesn't. That's good news, huh? You know, it's not inevitable. So, 
we do this mindfulness practice as we've been doing here for one to five weeks, depending on when you came. And we practice learning to see clearly. The word vipassana actually means to see clearly. And we're learning to know our bodies and to know the heart and mind, to recognize thoughts as just thoughts. Some of them are useful and some not. And in this particular case, to recognize the state of fear and to begin to realize that there's always time to consider a a response. There's some interesting research that's been done by Oliver Sacks, who's that great, interesting neurologist and writer. And he says that research shows that when we're in mortal danger, there's often an expanded sense of time. There's some way in which you do have that space to figure out quickly what you need to do. And people who are athletes also know that expanded sense of time. It's what allows them to be so very, very precise and skillful in their response to any particular situation. There is time to make decisions. However, the Buddha did not say to that group of people, just be mindful, head on out into the forest, be mindful, you'll be fine. Did he? He didn't. He gave them the metta sutta. I'm sure they knew the practice of mindfulness, they were his students, but he gave them this additional practice, really suggesting that what would help them most with their fear, with this walk that was going to be scary, what would help them most would be to open the heart. And in order to have the steadiness that we need, we need a spacious and open heart. We need a heart that isn't judging and complaining about our fear. We need a heart that will listen. We are invited. I love that image in the Metta Sutta. Even as a mother, you know, holds her child, her beloved child. So we're invited to hold ourselves, to hold our fear, just as you would hold a scared child. Now I ask you, I don't imagine all of us do that all the time. We forget, you know. But if it's a child, you know, they're scared of the dark, there's something under the bed, they hear a sound, you you pick them up, you hold them, Oh, poor boo-boo, you know, it'll be all right. Let's turn on the nightlight. Let's look under the bed. You do all those things, right? You know, we, we, those of us who've been with kids at night, we, we know that that's true. And so that's really what we're invited to do a bit here, is how do we hold ourselves gently, steadily and strongly, but also gently with our fear. So we can do a variety of things to develop a heart that is steady and spacious. We can create the conditioning for other mind states that are more supportive and more wholesome um, to work with our fear. So we know that volitional actions have consequences. That's the whole teaching about karma. 
And we also know that creating and sustaining wholesome mind states, that, that, that's considered to be two of the um, list of, that is the wise use of energy, which is actually another one of the wings in this set of wings. And dis- dispelling and discouraging unskillful mind states as are the other steps in that list. So the Buddha's gift to these monks was the practice of developing the heart of goodwill and kindness, creating the conditions for goodwill and kindness, if you will, to all beings, omitting none. I always, that's the part that always makes me sort of sit up and take notice. It's like, oh, I mean, I can't, I'd like to leave out a few people, but the Buddha doesn't let us do that. So here's a reading that I've always loved. It's in honor of Deepama, that great teacher that I think Sylvia mentioned the other night. I'm not sure, Sylvia or John. And when she died, um, Father Theophane, uh, who wrote the book The Magic Monastery, wrote this about her. He said, what is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died. This would be Deepama. They proceeded to open up her heart You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me. Even me. How did I get there? Here's the question. Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? So metta is the first of the Brahma-viharas, the abodes of the heart that we're working on every night. There are three more. There's compassion, joy, and equanimity. Metta, karuna, mudita, upekka. Your dorms, right? There are some misguided students over the years who thought maybe there was a fifth Brahma-vihara that was called Council House. But uh, I think maybe we should have called the Council House Gratitude or something like that. Then it would at least sort of fit in with the crew. So here at the, this retreat, some, those of you who are the two-month group have, I think, worked your way through all four of them once. And the rest of you have started with metta. And we're, we're going to move on through all four as the retreat goes on. It's really important to note that the sutta begins, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. Skilled. And really emphasizing that this is a training, this is a skill that you develop. Goodness is not something that you just inherently have, apparently. We have to practice it. And there's lots of description in the sutta about what this might look like. Living carefully and mindfully and well, opening the heart to all, spreading kindness over the entire world. And we train in this way. We train extending friendliness and goodwill to ourselves and then to others, beginning with the benefactor on moving on outward, the good friend, and then someone neutral, and then someone who's difficult. Very, very important to remember that it's a training. 
The image that I gave the other night when I taught the metta was the image of digging drainage ditches in the Himalayan soil. That's what the Tibetans teach about these practices. They say it's like digging drainage ditches. And I always think the Himalayan soil, I'm not sure it ever unfreezes, really. So it's, and it's rocky. It must be a terribly difficult job. And my mind's about like that, you know. And so we're pulling one rock out at a time as we create this place where the mind can flow more naturally towards these different um, skillful mind states. We've started, we've spent a lot of time extending metta to ourselves. And one of the things I really want to say is I cannot stress enough the importance of doing metta for yourself. For reasons that were not entirely clear to me a few years back, I took on a six-month period of doing no other practice except for metta to myself. I felt a little guilty and a little embarrassed, and I wasn't quite sure it was kosher, but I did it anyway, just, I don't know, to see what would happen. And it was a very amazing six months. I didn't do any mindfulness practice. I didn't do metta for other people except for my little list at the end of my sitting period. I'd kind of go through them quickly because I didn't want to leave them out. But, you know, it was all metta for myself. And it actually was very, very interesting to see how it wasn't, in the, in the end, it wasn't just for myself. It couldn't be just for myself. It began to open the heart in an amazing way. It's also important to say, we give you phrases. We give you some very traditional phrases. We give you the phrases that are used on the metta retreats. But you are so welcome to make your own phrases. You know, you could say something like, Honey, you're fine just the way you are. That would be a great metta phrase, you know. And it might make you feel actually a little cared for, right? You know? Or you can wish yourself peace or ease of being. Or I've had, well, here's one that I've loved. May I be free from the prison of my stories. May I be free from the prison of my stories. Thich Nhat Hanh describes the heart of, of loving kindness and compassion as never disparaging. Isn't that great? Never disparaging the heart that is always able to see in ourselves and in others the potential for waking up, the potential for Buddhahood. Imagine. Now that might be a good metaphrase. I see the capacity for Buddhahood in myself. Or I see it in you. Or I see it in the difficult person. You know. It's also so important to say, as we do these practices, that they are not wimpy. They are not wimpy. Sometimes kindness is very ferocious. Any of you who have been parents of two-year-olds know that you have to be ferocious in your kindness on occasion. Probably parents of adolescents too know that pretty well. Parents of any kind. You have to be ferocious sometimes. And it's kind, you know. So to remember that, that it has its ferocious aspect. As we're working on opening this heart with metta, 
I think it's also very, very important to include the practices of forgiveness. Because old wounds and guilt are the places where the heart and mind are often most contracted, and it's actually one of the places that can most easily lead to fear. So forgiveness, to remind you, is not about forgetting. It is not about forgetting. It's not about pretending that something didn't happen. It's not something that you just decide to do for the most part. You don't just say, okay, I, I get it, I have to forgive that person, so I'm doing it, and then it's over. I wish it could be so easy, but I think it rarely, rarely is. It can take years, years and years and years. And as I said the other night, sometimes where you are in a forgiveness practice is simply having the idea that it would be nice if you could. That's an important idea, actually. It would be great if I could forgive that person. I'm not there yet, but I'd like to be there. So you're beginning to set that intention that John talked about this morning. You're shooting that arrow out. And we work with forgiveness for others who have harmed us. We ask for forgiveness. And we also work with forgiving ourselves. All of them difficult in their own way. Henri Nouwen says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. So, you know, no matter what someone has done, you know, even if it's terrible, even if you can never, ever safely be in the presence of that person again. Forgiveness is about keeping the heart open, even under those circumstances. We can wish them well. We can wish them a better life. You know, each of us has been injured, some of us terribly. Each of us has caused harm, and some of it has not been good. You know, we've all done some very difficult things. We all have all of the behaviors in us. We have all of the light, and we have all of the darkness. When we begin to see this, when we can own it for ourselves, as we see it, as we're sitting here on the cushion, you know, then that's actually what allows the judgment and the criticism to subside and the heart to begin to open. It allows us to remember fully, to acknowledge fully, and to be able to forgive. I recently um, came across this excerpt from some of the writings of Desmond Tutu. And he says, I think back to my time as the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. A hearing that will forever be imprinted on my memory was an investigation 
into the shooting of unarmed demonstrators by members of the armed forces. The hall in which the hearing took place was packed to the rafters with a crowd who was justifiably angry. The tension was palpable. Four soldiers entered, and their commanding officer admitted delivering the instruction to open fire. He turned to the crowd and asked, Please forgive me. The crowd then did something that none of us could have predicted. They broke into wild applause. When the applause subsided, I turned to my fellow members of the commission and said, Let us be quiet, because we are in the presence of something truly holy. Forgiveness is never easy or cheap. It isn't something you can demand of others. Forgiveness is a deeply personal journey to reconnect with the whole of humanity around you and therefore reconnect with yourself. It is essential because it reveals how we are inextricably bound to each other. There is no future without forgiveness. So these practices that we do, these trainings, this training of metta, creates new pathways in the mind. The mind more easily flows towards kindness. I don't guarantee much, but I've seen it work over and over and over again. And when we go about the world with a stance of friendliness, we have fewer enemies and the world is a safer place. So I also want to say a couple of things about the other trainings because they also enlarge the heart and we will be doing them in the Brahma Vihara time. We're about to start the training of compassion soon. So the practice of compassion is the ability to be fully present in the moment with our own pain and with that of another. The word karuna literally means the quivering of the heart. It's that which does not turn away. It's that which has sympathy for all beings without exception. So you've been training already because mindfulness is a great training and compassion. You've been sitting with your pain, that in your body and that of the heart, and you've been practicing trying to hold it carefully and give it your attention and simply accept it for what it is. I've had a phrase that has come to me often in my practice which says, mindfulness is the best mother. Mindfulness is the best mother. And so we sit, don't we, with all of the things, the the things that happen inside of you and then all of those things that do happen around you, the sniffling and the wiggling and the weeping and the swallowing and all of the things, you know, that, that can be irritating. Or we can go, oh, that person is really restless. What a hard sit it must be. You know, may you have ease. May you, you know, may your pain go away, you know. And, and so that's always the question. Do we judge it? Do we criticize it? Do we push it away? Or do we try to be present with it and hold it in compassion? You can work with phrases, you know. I see your suffering. May you be free from your suffering, 
you know, all those kinds of phrases, again, ones that you make up for yourself or traditional ones. I also very much like the Tibetan practice of Tonglen, where when you're being with someone who's in pain or with your own pain, you breathe it in. You allow it to go into the heart, and the heart often actually does feel a little like it's quivering. And then you breathe out compassion. So breathing in the suffering, breathing out the compassion as a way to just train in being present and training the heart not to turn away from pain. There's the practice of happiness and joy, mudita. And often I think on retreats, you know, we get so involved in suffering and the ending of suffering that we kind of forget about happiness and joy. And so I want to remind you that reflecting on your happiness is a great support for your practice. It's actually one of the best foundations for concentration, which makes total sense. It's very hard to be concentrated if you're unhappy. You can't, actually. So, you know, reflecting on your joy, reflecting on your happiness, reflecting on how amazing it is to be here for this long. You know, you uh, it's, it's astounding to have one or two months on retreat in such a wonderful place. And I've heard this so many times in the last couple of days in interviews. You know, to really feel your gratitude, to bring that sense of blessing to your day, as John suggested this morning. It's really, it's, it's okay to be happy at retreat. It really, <laughs> really is. A few years back, I sat a retreat on the Big Island, where I live some of the time. And I was in this little trailer, a little Airstream trailer, right on the edge of the Waipio Valley at the northern end of the island. And so straight down from my little ledge where the trailer was, about a thousand feet below, was is the beach. And it was a great little spot, very secluded, very quiet. And I had this beautiful you know, cliffs and beach and ocean. There were whales that came to play. And there were, you know, I'd go out to walk and the whales would be jumping out in the bay and I would think, oh, this is too blissful. You know, there's got to be something wrong with this retreat. How can I have a retreat that's this happy and this blissful? It was just a happy, blissful retreat. Probably had nothing to do with the circumstances, actually. I probably could have had a miserable retreat in the same place. But it took me a while to just get, it's okay to be happy. You know, just enjoy your happiness. Here's another poem. It's from Billy Collins. He says, so much gloom and doubt in our poetry, flowers wilting on the table, the self regarding itself in a watery mirror, dead leaves cover the ground, the wind moans in the chimney, and the tendrils of the yew tree inch towards the coffin. I wonder what the ancient Chinese poets would make of all this, the shadows and the empty cupboards. Today, with the sun blazing in the trees, my thoughts turn to the great 10th century celebrators of experience. Wahoo, whose delight in the smallest things could hardly be restrained, and to his joyous counterpart in the western provinces, yee-haw. (laughs) So you can have a little wahoo and yee-haw in your practice. And I've actually thought you could do a kind of tonglen. I've sort of invented this practice, so you could try it and tell me how it goes. Where you can do the same thing. You can breathe in the happiness. 
your own happiness or another's happiness and breathe out happiness for their happiness. That'd be fun, right? It feels so good. May, or you can work with phrases. You're welcome to do that. May you enjoy this happiness. May it last a long time. Those kinds of things. It's very, very helpful encountering the judgmental and critical mind. And so when the person in front of you gets the biggest piece of cornbread, the one that doesn't have any edges, or the one that does if you like the crunchy part at the edge, you can go, may you enjoy your happiness. You know, may you enjoy the yumminess of that cornbread. Or there they are in your beautiful walking path. And you can enjoy their happiness at having such a delicious spot to do their walking. Or if they've fallen asleep, it's late at night and you're in here and somebody's snoring away. You know? Enjoy their peace and enjoy their happiness. Why go, you know, why? Go to the criticism. The heart becomes bigger and bigger. But here's a catch. We have kindness, we have compassion, we have gladness. It's not enough. It's not enough. Some years ago, I decided that I was going to go to the beach. There's a state park with a campground and a picnic ground not far from where I live for my walk every day, and I was going to do loving-kindness practice. So I started walking along, you know, people, dogs, seagulls, that kind of thing, sending them kindness and goodwill and friendliness. But, you know, sometimes there were things that were difficult. Sometimes people were unhappy. Sometimes children were crying. So I realized I needed to bring in a little compassion practice. And sometimes, of course, there was lots of happiness. They, they were having a lot more fun. They were on vacation. I wasn't, you know, and they were having a lot of fun. And so I realized I could bring in the mudita practice and really enjoy their happiness. But then I began to realize there were some situations that were really difficult. The pain was maybe because people were arguing or fighting or being mean to the children or something like that. Or maybe they were happy, but they were doing it in ways that I had some questions about or you know, a little more interesting substances involved than I thought was such a good idea. I wasn't so sure about their happiness. And so I had judgment and criticism, right? And I realized that I needed equanimity. I needed equanimity to support the kindness, the compassion, the sympathetic joy. I'm sure the, the, that little band of monks and nuns wandering back through the forest, they had their metta sutta, but they probably needed equanimity as well. We have to have that steadiness in order not to be bowled over by the events of our lives. So again, there's phrases, may I be balanced and steady. Things are the way they are. My wishes for things to be different will not change things. Only actions change things. I am the inheritor of my own karma, or this person is the inheritor of their own karma. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. The actual meaning of upeka, the word for equanimity, is discerning rightly or viewing justly. And it is the capacity to be very steadily present with things just as they are, sustaining present, to be balanced. Now, I think it's really important to remember, I always use the image of somebody on a tightrope. Tightrope walkers do not 
just cruise across the tightrope. I wish. They wobble, right? Way over this way, way over that way. Sometimes they fall off. Then they climb up their little ladder and they do it again. That's exactly what equanimity is about. Sometimes you wobble, you need to adjust, you need to keep shifting. It's another place where the surfing image is really helpful because you're constantly adjusting your balance to accommodate for where the waves are. It supports your mindfulness, equanimity does. It's, you can develop it as, to support your, your mindfulness. And it's also the fruit of mindfulness. It's also the product of your path. And so willy-nilly, all of you are more equanimous than you were when you came in. You may not feel that way, but it's actually true. And you would find that out if you were ending the retreat right now, which fortunately you're not. So you'll be more equanimous by the end of the retreat. I find that a sense of perspective is really, really helpful with equanimity. You know, I remember in one of my personal crises, Gil Fransdahl said to me, Mary, you're one of seven billion people. You know, maybe you could not get quite so dramatic. And that was, he didn't quite say it that way, but you know. But that's what he meant, and it was true. And it was sort of like, what? What do you mean I'm one of seven billion? You know, surely this thing that's going on in my life is way more important. But, you know, it's worse than that, really. We are one of one to 200 billion galaxies in the cosmos that we know about. And each of those galaxies has 200 to 400 billion stars. You know, this is small potatoes, what's happening here with us. You know? I, sometimes I think of this and I've often thought, I'm just this little speck. And while I was sitting here before the talk, I was just, my eye caught on this piece and I thought, little speck is going to give a Dharma talk. And I was a little nervous, right? But it was really helpful to think, I'm just this little infinitesimal speck in this great, great big picture. You know? Well, it's, it's a huge and vast picture. And sometimes that will help to give you a sense of, oh, okay, I can, I can be balanced with this. It maybe doesn't matter so much if I make a mistake. You know, I don't, I really, I don't know, who knows what's really going on. Um, I don't know, you don't really know either. And I find that it helps to, for me to be less caught in my fears and desires. So, it's really important to remember that all of these practices, as we work with them, are trainings. We're setting an intention, an intention for friendliness and goodwill, an intention for compassion, an intention for sympathetic joy and gladness, an intention for equanimity. We're planting the seed. And these are practices that we do. These are not feelings. It's not about getting a feeling. It's about doing a practice, which is a really different thing. Liberation is about waking up in each moment. It's about waking up even in the difficult moments, even when there is fear, even when there is judgment, even when there is criticism, even when we don't know what to do. It's not about not having those moments. It's about waking up to them. So the question, as I said the other night, is always, 
Where is the place of liberation in this very moment? Can I be steady enough? Can my heart be open enough? Can I be unafraid enough to find it? You know, is it, it might be a moment of real fear here on, in the retreat. It might be a moment in the world when you're with a friend who's very ill or perhaps even dying. It may be a moment when anger and aversion have arisen and you want to react in some way. What are the wings for awakening in this moment? Which ones do I need? What do I use in this moment when it's very dark and I'm very afraid? The well-trained heart knows how to be present, is filled with goodwill towards every being or towards more and more beings as you get better at it, is able to be steady in the face of the deepest pain and the greatest happiness. And it's able to stay balanced and to make its way through all circumstances. Ajahn Chah says, he describes it, he says, your mind, your heart mind really, will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The heart has everything it needs. You have everything that you need. You have the trainings that you need so that you can meet the difficulties of the world with strength and without fear. This is, in fact, the heart of the Buddha. So one last poem. It's from Rebecca Baggett. It's called Testimony. It's about an open heart even with difficulties. She says, I want to tell you that the world is still beautiful. I tell you that despite children raped on city streets, shot down in schoolrooms, despite the slow poison seeping from old and hidden sins into our air, soil, water, despite the thinning film that encloses our aching world, despite my own terror and despair. I want you to know that spring is no small thing, that the tender grasses curling like a baby's fine hairs around your fingers are a recurring miracle. I want to tell you that the river rocks shine like God, that the crisp voices of the orange and gold October leaves are laughing at death. I want to remind you to look beneath the grass to note the fragile hieroglyphs of ant, snail, beetle. I want you to understand that you are no more and no less necessary than the brown recluse, the ruby-throated hummingbird, the humpback whale, the profligate mimosa. I want to say, like Neruda, that I am waiting for a great and common tenderness that I still believe we are capable of attention, that anyone who notices the world must want to save it. So let's breathe together for a minute, just as you are.
So thank you very much for listening this afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.